Hey everyone, I'm Simmer, a student at Harvard University. And I'm Roger, a student at King's College London. And, and this, this is That Many podcast. podcast. In this podcast, we spoke to Dr. Robert Harrington, an interventional cardiologist and chair of the Department of Medicine at Stanford. We discussed the importance of ensuring clinical research actually benefits patients, the characteristics of effective leadership, and the future of digital health. Today's show is perfect for anyone excited about the intersections between policy, leadership, and digital health, or just intrigued about the future of medicine. So without further ado, let's have a listen. Hi, Dr. Harrington. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with us. So we normally start the podcast by asking the question, why did you decide to study medicine? Oh, this is taking us back a few years, but um, I, I actually went to college as a chemistry pre-med major. And I think I was pre-med because it seemed like an interesting, good thing to do. And I won't say that I was completely committed or really thought that's what I was going to do. Through a series of classes that I took, et cetera, I changed my major from chemistry to English. But I had by that point also been excited by the sciences and the opportunities that might be available in medicine. So I stayed as a, an unusual breed in those days. I was an English pre-med. And it really, I think, evolved over the course of my college life that I decided to ultimately apply to medical school, applied when I was a senior in medical school, and went from there. Incredible. That idea of an English pre-med, I think it's still, to a certain extent, a rare breed today. And jumping a little bit to the present, you are now, of course, the chair of the Department of Medicine at Stanford University. So I was wondering, could you share your pathway towards this extraordinary leadership role and tell us a little bit about what your responsibilities consist of? Well, I, I will make the pathway or the path, the journey to my current role seem linear. But one of the things I want to stress to all of the listeners is that these pathways in medicine, these journeys towards leadership are rarely truly linear. There's a lot of stops and starts. There's side paths that take you in a different direction, sometimes forever, sometimes for a period of time before you get back onto another path. And so no one should think that while when you read somebody's CV or resume, that the story that's creating sounds to be this nice, logical, linear progression. There's a lot of twists and turns along the way, and that's probably good for uh, people to understand. I'm a, uh, a cardiologist. I'm an interventional cardiologist by training. I graduated from, uh, from Tufts Medical School did my residency at University of Massachusetts in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts. I can even say it like someone from <laughs> Massachusetts. And after spending four years doing internal medicine training, I moved to Duke University where I did my cardiology training, my interventional cardiology training, and spent a couple of years doing research in what was then called the Duke Data Bank for Cardiovascular Diseases. Really had decided by that point that what interested me was the intersection of clinical practice and clinical research. And so that couple of years I spent in the data bank really learning the key elements of clinical investigation, including epidemiology, biostatistics, study design, et cetera, was really critical to my ability to then join the Duke faculty as a young investigator and spent most of my time at Duke 
splitting time between clinical cardiology care for me, most notably as an interventional cardiologist and, um, and a clinical investigator, someone who um, was interested in clinical trials, outcomes research, and uh, ultimately had some leadership opportunities within the research group culminating in uh, a large leadership job at Duke where I was uh, for six to seven years the director of the Duke Clinical Research Institute. I was then recruited to Stanford to uh, be the chair of the Department of Medicine, and that's where I am now. You mentioned Duke and the Duke Clinical Research Institute, which happens to be the world's largest academic clinical research organization. So I want to talk a little bit more about that. I'm curious, what are you most proud of during your time there? Oh, you know, I, I was at DCRI since its founding. Uh, it's interesting you asked the question that we're now, with my friends at Duke, we're planning the celebrations for the Duke Clinical Research Institute's 25th anniversary, which is this year, 2021. And during my tenure, I would say that I'm most proud of a couple of things. One was the diversification of the research portfolio. We really moved beyond, in a major way, being a coordinating center for clinical trials. That was an important part of what we did. But we also moved more broadly into uh, expanded outcomes research, health services research, some health policy, increasing emphasis on health economics. We diversified the therapeutic areas that we were interested in. While I said I'm a cardiologist, I, I have interest outside of that. And in fact, the Duke Clinical Research Institute, by the time I finished my tenure, while it had mostly been cardiology when I started, when I finished, it was about 50% cardiology and, and a lot of other therapeutic areas under investigation. And then maybe the thing that I'm most proud of is that we really expanded the research fellowship opportunities uh, to the point where every year we were uh, supporting 30, 35, 40 research fellows who represented different areas of the world and different areas of medicine. And I really enjoyed spending time with the fellows and overseeing some of their development as they spent anywhere from a year to, in some cases, three or four years as postdoctoral research fellows. So that, that's while we did a lot and accomplished a lot during those years that I was the director, I think I'm most proud of what we did in the fellowship program. Incredible. And one of the things you mentioned a little bit earlier on was this idea of health policy. Um, there's a quote that I really like. It goes, science without policy is a few papers and nothing more. Policy without science is frankly dangerous. So I'm curious, how do you ensure that the research you conduct, whether that be at TCRI, now at Stanford, all that research actually translates into tangible changes rather than sitting in a journal somewhere? Well, it's, it's an important part of the, the research journey is that you have a question, which a good question arises from observation in clinical practice, observation in taking care of patients that, hmm, we, we have an issue here that we don't fully understand. And then one might generate a hypothesis. One tests that hypothesis using the methods of clinical trials, outcomes research, et cetera. But the story's not over. Once you get the answer to that question, it's critically important that one disseminate that. Now, the classic way of disseminating it is through the peer review literature. But I agree with your statement that if all we end up with is a couple of papers read by a few other experts in the field, that's not really going to have an impact. And that's really not going to influence 
human health. What you really want to do is be able to disseminate those results both to different audiences as well as through different mechanisms that you might reach the ear of some people who are responsible for things like the regulations of, uh, of, of medical products that might reach the ears of policymakers who are trying to decide what's the approach or the best approach to a certain way of treating a disease or a condition. And so you really do want to make sure that you're thinking about the longer implication, the application of what you did, as opposed to just discovering something for the sake of discovery. There's an important role of discovery science, but ultimately as a clinical investigator, what you're interested in is changing clinical care and clinical practice. Certainly. And on the same realm of changing clinical care and changing practice, I know that you are a recent president of the American Heart Association, which is one of the largest health agencies and nonprofits in the world. So I'm very, very curious, what exactly did that role consist of? And why was it so meaningful? Well, the American Heart Association has been a critical part of my professional life for close to 30 years now. Uh, the American Heart Association is the second largest funder of heart and stroke related research in this country after the federal government. So many of us who work in the areas of science and clinical investigation uh, have at some point over the years obtained funding through the American Heart Association. So that piece is critically important to me. There's also a huge educational effort of the American Heart Association. And whether that's through annual meetings or through the dissemination of knowledge through its journals, uh, the AHA has contributed to my education for sure over the years. There's 40,000 science volunteers who make up the AHA. Think about that. 40,000 scientists from various aspects of cardiovascular care, and science that, that are volunteers of the Heart Association. And the role of the president is really to represent those scientists and the voice of science on the uh, board of directors. The board of directors, as you might expect, is, uh, is chaired by a business person. And many of the people on the board of directors are business people. Some come from areas of public health. Some are, in fact, physicians, but the majority are actually uh, not physicians and not scientists. And so a key role of the president is to be the lead science volunteer on the board, here to bring the voice of science to the board. There's also a very public-facing role in that the role of the president is to communicate science to the public and, and in many ways to be the public face of the AHA when it comes to matters of science that need to be discussed with the public. And so for me, it was really as an organization I've been deeply committed to for several decades, to be able to serve in that lead science volunteer role was a was a great honor and very meaningful. And uh, it happened that my year coincided with a global pandemic, mm -hmm. which I think in some ways made the role even more interesting and maybe even more important. I'd be really curious if you could expand on that. How did the pandemic affect your priorities, affect the AHA's work? Yeah, so it was realized early on that, that the intersection of the pandemic and cardiovascular medicine was an important one. Early reports out of China and out of Europe were that people with pre-existing cardiac diseases look to be both at an increased risk of the disease as well as an increased risk of complications for the disease. 
And so early on, there were reports that came out with very conflicting information about potentially, for example, the risk of drugs like ACE inhibitors as, uh, as something that might either worsen the likelihood of infection or maybe worsen the outcome of someone who becomes infected. We quickly needed to uh, examine that and put forward public documents that really called on us as a community to get more data before making pronouncements that this was either you know, good or bad. And so one of the roles that the AHA quickly had to take on was a very, very active part of the public dialogue about the intersection of the pandemic with cardiovascular disease and stroke. Uh, we also, because we're a research funding organization, really went into this with uh, that part of our persona. Shortly after the pandemic was, uh, was really hitting the United States, we launched a, as part of our Get With The Guideline, cardiovascular and stroke disease registries, we launched COVID-specific registries to collect data on what was going on uh, to be able to inform the community with real data as to how COVID might be affecting people with cardiovascular disease or how it might be associated with worsening cardiovascular or stroke outcomes. We put forward an RFP for um, rapid challenge grants in that regard and got over 700 applications and ended up ultimately funding about 18 or 19 from that pool. And this all happened really quickly, like in a matter of weeks, not the wow. usual months to years that these things take. And we quickly put millions of dollars into researchers' hands to be able to help analyze and to think about some of these questions. The AHA seems to have played a really incredible role in combating the COVID pandemic. And something that I think has been brought to the forefront is science communication. Uh, you mentioned that a little bit earlier with the public-facing role you had as the president of the AHA. And I think that something that I care deeply about is health literacy. I think that medical knowledge is not always accessible to the public, and it's a large motivator behind this podcast. So I'm curious then that you often interact with individuals who do not have a medical or scientific background, whether that be on your board of directors at AHA or just the public at large. And I'm curious, how do you make the complex medicine, the important scientific discoveries and policies understandable to a larger swath of the public? You know, it's interesting, Eric Topol uh, from Scripps Clinic gave our medical grand rounds here at Stanford, and he was asked that very question. And he was asked, why is it that he has really taken on one of these roles of being someone who discusses uh, COVID science every day? And he said, because he really does want to appeal both to a lay audience as well as a scientific audience. And I would say in listening to him and learning from people like him, what you really need to do is know your audience. I can go to a medical meeting and speak cardiology to all the people in the audience, and that's an important role as I transmit my science and disseminate my science. But I learned, I think, in part through my HA role, how to take that information and translate it so that it's more accessible to the general public. And part of the role of the AHA president is to be able to work with communication professionals so that we can talk not using the lingo of medicine, but really trying to break it down into more simple terms so that all can understand it. Um, I actually think that's one of the great gifts that Dr. Topol has, his ability to do that. And we need more people like that who can translate these complicated topics into understandable concepts. Now, shifting gears a little bit, I know that you were also involved with the Apple Heart Study, which is a groundbreaking introduction of wearable technologies into clinical research. 
I also know that you founded the Stanford Center for Digital Health, with which that study was conducted. So for our audience at home, what is the mission of the center? Well, I want to make sure there's plenty of credit given to other people. Of course. Uh, it actually started on my watch, but many, many people involved, most notably uh, Sumbal Desai and uh, Mentu Tarakia, two uh, faculty colleagues here. It was really the, the acknowledgement that there were two fundamental things going on here on our campus, one of which is that our faculty, students, staff were working on a variety of digital things, some of which might have real applicability to solving problems in healthcare, but they weren't technologists. They weren't people that invented devices or algorithms, and they needed to be matched with potentially people who did. And then there were people from the technology sphere who had some great gadgets and widgets but didn't necessarily understand clinical medicine, nor have access to people who were working in clinical medicine. So the initial role of the Center for Digital Health was really to serve both audiences. How could we take Stanford ideas and technologies and potentially interact with people in the technology sphere? And how could we serve as matchmakers, if you will, for technologists who needed to gain some medical or clinical expertise um, from our Stanford faculty, students, and trainees? And I'm curious, what are you excited about for the center's future? Oh, I, I think that the center has done a great job under uh, Mintu's leadership that they really are now serving as a, a real nidus on campus to make these connections across a variety of therapeutic areas with a variety of technology partners. They're serving a really important educational role that I really think is going to increase. And they're serving as a forum to come together to talk about research in the digital space to begin to plan research studies. And not surprisingly, they can help coordinate clinical studies and access to the clinical environment to do research. So all of that, I think, is a critical part of the center and things that are really flourishing right now. And talking more broadly, where do you see digital health taking medicine in the next 15 to 20 years? And is there any technology in particular you're excited by? I'm just excited by improving the way we deliver care through a broad array of digital offerings. And I said it very specifically because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not confining it to wearable devices. It includes things like telemedicine. It includes things like wearables, but it also includes things like AI and machine learning algorithms that might help people navigate their care. It's allowing, I hope, better access of care, a more convenient access of care. And ultimately, the hope is that we improve patient outcomes through better deployment of technology, better access through the use of technology, better follow-up through the use of technology. I'm not Pollyannish about it, meaning I don't think that technology solves all issues, but I do think that there's going to be an important role for the integration of technologies more than there are today. Medicine has been a great technology grounds, right? I mean, think about all the high-tech imaging and surgical and interventional procedures that are done. But in the, you know, the ambulatory care setting, one could argue that it looks like it looked for decades. Uh, you come into an office, see a clinician in his or her office, deliver a history, get a physical exam, maybe go off for some lab work and some imaging and embark upon a course of therapy. Well, what about now the option that we can measure your blood pressure much more regularly than one every three months when you come into off the office? What about if we can understand the progress of your diabetes control, your glucose control, not 
by periodic finger sticks, but in continuous monitoring and delivery of medications. What about utilizing technologies to change and influence behavior towards more healthy behaviors, exercise, better diet, better sleep? So I think there's so many opportunities to improve human health with technology. Certainly, it requires the type of rigorous study we've done with drugs, devices, other other things. Uh, but I'm really bullish on the future. That's really exciting. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the many hats that you've worn or you currently wear, many leadership roles you've held. Are there any mentors or leaders that you look up to? If you ask anybody who's a senior academic, I would hope they say too many mentors and colleagues who have influenced me to count. <laughs> I owe so much to so many people who have taken an interest in my life and an interest in the things that I do. Some of them have been lifelong mentors. Michael Collins, who's a general internist and the chancellor at University of Massachusetts in Worcester, is somebody that I've known since I was a college student, and he was a house officer working in uh, in Boston. We got to meet each other. He's been what I would call a life mentor with great advice, both professional and personal over the years. Someone who's taken a great deal of time and interest in helping me along the way. Professionally, I have many, many mentors, but the one that I always mention is uh, Dr. Rob Califf, who was my, my research mentor, my colleague, my friend over the years. We have done many, many things together, but Rob, more than anyone professionally, serves as the anchor of, uh, of mentorship in my professional progress. And I'm curious, from your own experiences with leadership, from seeing leaders and mentors of your own, what lessons about effective leadership have you learned? As a leader, I always am telling people to recognize what your limitations are and surround yourself with people who are better than you are in other areas. And if you are comfortable leading people who are highly skilled and highly accomplished, you can accomplish even more together. And so as a leader, I recognize what my uh, limitations are, where I don't have content knowledge, for example, where I don't have uh, a deep sense of what that field might be. And the goal is really to find people who can work with you in a team-based way to solve problems and move the organization forward. And I think that another great trait of leaders is that they're often great educators. And we've talked a little bit about education throughout the podcast. The fellowship program at the Duke Clinical Research Institute, for example. But I think that something that is really interesting to me is that you've helped democratize medicine. You have an active Twitter account. You have a podcast of your own, which is The Bob Harrington Show. Our audience can already appreciate that you're an incredibly busy individual. So why do you spend your time on these efforts? I, I see both what I do in social media as well as in my work um, with things like uh, a podcast as being an important part of my communication strategies. So as I said, I'm a clinician, I'm a clinical researcher, I want to disseminate information. And there are few better tools today to disseminate information than social media. I think it's important that there be knowledgeable scientific voices out in the Twitter sphere so that uh, credible information can be delivered. I look at all, everything that I do, the foundation has to be good, solid research, but we disseminate it in different ways. And I think about one of your earlier comments that if I do a research study and write a paper and a half a dozen knowledgeable people in the field read it, okay, that's important. 
But if I tweet about it and other people tweet about it, it can reach thousands, tens of thousands. And so I'm interested in that. Podcast, I got into that a, a long time ago now, more than 10 mm. years ago now, wow. uh, because I saw it as, again, as an opportunity to convey information, to engage in debate about um, topics that are of interest to cardiovascular medicine. In both the Twittersphere and in my podcast, I've largely focused on cardiovascular medicine, even though I have leadership roles broader than that, because I really feel like that, that's the expertise I bring to the table. I'm a cardiovascular clinician. I'm a cardiovascular scientist. Let's focus my discussions, my public debates in that, in that arena that I know best, that I have deep content knowledge in. Certainly. And I think that nearly wraps up the episode. But before we go, could I ask for your three pieces of advice for students interested in a career in medicine? Sure. And I think these are things that we've touched upon throughout the, uh, our conversation. I'll say, um, number one, don't think that career progression is going to be linear. There's lots of starts and stops. But I would say be willing to embrace serendipity, that things may go in a different direction than you intended, and keep your eyes open to those opportunities, that that new direction may be just where you need to be. Number two, get great mentors who are going to help you and get great mentees that you can help. It really is a bi-directional thing that we do over our careers. We rely on others and hopefully we pass it on to others. And then finally, have some fun. One of the other reasons I didn't mention that I enjoy Twitter and that I enjoy my podcast is it's fun. I like engaging in conversations with smart people like yourself about interesting topics. I, I really enjoy that sort of conversational part of science. And and I think that that's fun for me. It's a break from some of the other things I do while still having meaning and purpose. So have some fun in your professional life. Well, this has been a lot of fun for me, Dr. Harrington. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's really been a privilege to talk with you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. You can also head to the description of this podcast to follow us on all social media so that you don't miss out on any of our content.